Good evening, everybody. Welcome back to Exploring the Lord of the Rings. Uh, this is session number 254 of Exploring the Lord of the Rings. And first thing, um, uh, <laughs> sorry to everybody for the abrupt ending of the last session. Um, I lost power uh, um, and it came back pretty quickly as these things go. I got it back in about 15 minutes, but by the time I'd gotten back and still would have had to reboot and re-enter and everything by then, you guys would have been half an hour gone and it would have been time to stop anyway. So, uh, yeah, anyway, so <laughs> apologies uh, for the uh, unexpected, unexpectedly abrupt conclusion uh, last last week. So, oh, cool. I see some on Twitch, some uh, first-time folks uh, joining live. Um, I don't know how to say that. I, I did. I did, did I? Right, I see. That's confusing to read. And Samwise Bailey. Very good. Excellent. Um, yeah, very good. Anyway, welcome. Always exciting to meet people who are catching up with us here. Um, yeah, I know. We left the Fellowship in the Snow still again. I think we mostly finished the conversation I was wanting to have about Boromir. Uh, so, uh, I think that was, uh, I think that was pretty good. Hey, and Starry Sky is here. Fantastic. Excellent. Welcome. Welcome. Um, all right. Um, <laughs> very good. So, just two quick announcements before we begin tonight. Tomorrow, the first chapter of my new book is dropping in our, um, uh, our, serial release model with the Signum University Press. So um, I'm going to be taking, I'm going to be writing. So my Exploring the Lord of the Rings book is way bigger than I'd originally projected it was going to be. And that is not a surprise to anybody here, <laughs> I'm sure. Even though it's still, you know, very different from class and is certainly not um, extending indefinitely, he says very confidently. Um, but no, no, seriously. So it's going to be... Instead of one chapter per chapter, it's going to be three chapters per chapter. And I will say this, at least I know that from the beginning of this release. <laughs> Unlike how I did not know uh, how we were going to do this uh, class at the beginning of the class. So that's what's happening. Three chapters per chapter. So um, I am, so the first chapter, so there are going to be three chapters on the prologue are going to be the first three chapters, uh, that I'm going to be, uh, releasing here in the next three months. And then there'll be three chapters on chapter one. These, I, this, I say confidently because those are written. Um, uh, there's still some, some work I need to do on some of those to polish them up for release. But, um, but those I've, uh, I've, I've mapped out and written. So. Anyway, three chapters per chapter. Some are going to vary. There, I'm not saying there won't be any with four, but who knows? Maybe there'll be some with two. You just don't know about these things. But, uh, but because of this, I, you know, I'm doing a lot of stuff. So I am not going to be able to write more than a chapter a month. A chapter a month, one chapter every month is um, <laughs> really the most that I'm going to be able to commit to. Um, but, you know, it's been fun writing again. I, I know I said this last week, but I, I've, I've been missing it. I've been missing writing. Um, 
that's something that I have always really enjoyed doing, and I've been away from it for several years now, and it's been really fun getting back uh, into doing some serious writing again. So I'm loving writing the Exploring the Lord of the Rings book. This is volume one, of course, all stuff we've covered before uh, on our Tuesday night sessions. But, of course, what you get in the book is going to be synthesis, which we never have time to do here, right? Tuesday nights are all about observation and analysis and discovery, noticing that there are patterns, right? Drawing attention to it, saying we should pay attention to this kind of pattern, but but we don't have time to really synthesize, to uh, look at the patterns of evidence and to draw conclusions based on those things. So that's what... Um, uh, that's what's uh, going to happen. So yes, I am indeed covering the prologue, three chapters on the prologue. Uh, so my first chapter um, is on, uh, it's on the note on Shire Records. It's basically, so the first chapter is about the relationship that Tolkien establishes in the prologue between the story and the modern world, and more specifically, the story and the modern reader, um, uh, as they are picking up this book and trying to figure out what it is and what to do with it. I'm thinking, of course, in particular about the readers in the mid-50s picking up these books for the first time. So that's what my first chapter is about. I'm really, uh, I've been having such a great time with this. I'm excited about that. That's going to drop tomorrow. So if you would like to subscribe to my book, this the way this is, the subscription is going to work, it's very simple. You subscribe. It's two bucks a month. Um, two bucks a month for the, uh, for the, the print book, um, They'll be sent on PDFs uh, for now. Uh, it will be available on actual paper later on when the book is finished. Um, but we're going to be sending PDFs or audio files. I'm, I am doing an audio version um, right now. So this way you can you can be um, reading along with me uh, as the book unfolds over the course of these next... Because it'll be a few years. I mean, it's, again, it's there are 11 chapters plus the prologue and a conclusion that I'm going to be writing. So, but looking even just at the prologue in the 11 chapters, 12 chapters, so 36 chapters of mine or so to cover that material, and that's three years. So it's going to be a while um, that I'm going to be writing this book, which is great. I'm looking forward to it. Um, yet another long-term project. What could be better? Um, but... Um, uh, anyway, yeah, Bill Huggins thinks I'm going to write seven chapters on Weathertop. See, no, that, I, we'll see. I mean, who knows? Like, let me not uh, say anything that'll embarrass me later. But, um, but again, in class, Weathertop took so long because uh, we were discovering things, right? Now we've discovered them. Synthesis, totally different, totally different, uh, uh, process. Um, but, um, Anyway, anyway, so, um, so that's, um, so that's what's, so that's what's going to happen. Um, uh, I, and again, tomorrow is the release day of chapter one. So go to, um, press.signumuniversity.org or to Blackberry, just go directly to blackberry.signumuniversity.org. So go to blackberry.signumuniversity.org, go to the Signum, uh, University Press section and you can find the listing for my book and then you can subscribe you can subscribe to the audio or you can subscribe to the uh to the to the i don't know the word to use i always want to call it the print book meaning like print like the read it with your eyes or the read it with your ears it's the read it with your eyes thing when i say print though people think i'm referring to paper um text 
I guess, but I I just I use the word text. I don't know. The word text to me means something different. It means like the whole work, basically. It's a text, right? Um, like texts are things that I read. Um, I guess you read it in text, which seems clumsy to me. But anyway, yes. Yeah, so there's the ebook version and the audiobook version. Uh, you can subscribe to either one uh, there on blackberry.signumuniversity.org. Um, so if you would like to uh, join us, first chapter release tomorrow, which I'm celebrating, and then um, chapters after that, the second uh, chapter is written and going to my author circle for a uh, preview here this week. Uh, we'll meet about that next week. Uh, and um, and then the sec- that second chapter will be released uh, next month in March. Anyway, lots of... Um, um, Lots of fun, lots of fun. Uh, I, I do, again, it's been it's been so cool to be writing again. So that's first announcement. First chapter of my book drops tomorrow. Um, the second. So anyway, I was I wanted to, I want to clarify about that too. I know that there may be some people saying like you know I'll just I'll wait for the like book when it's finished, which is cool. You can totally do that. It's going to be three years from now, though. Just saying, um, it's going to be a bit of a wait. This is one of the really cool things. One of the things that I love about um, the way that the Signum University approach, the university press is approaching doing publication, is that instead of just like, instead of having the whole like writing and editing process happening like behind a curtain, right? So like the uh, the author just kind of goes, you know, whatever wherever authors go. Uh, to write and then, you know, comes and publishes the book and we bring it to you. Um, that we, I mean, one of the reasons that we're doing this is we want our readers to be more involved in the entire process. Like this is, this is a book, this is the excitement of which is unfolding right now. And I am so glad to get to share it with you guys as I go right now. Um, and uh, it's, that's, just so much more fun than sitting here and being like, I'm working on a book that I'm not going to tell you about until I ask you to buy it in three years or something like that. Um, so um, anyway, that's, uh, I, I think will be, uh, uh, this This is going to be so much more fun. So I'm really excited about this. I know this is a new model for people. This is not something that any publisher that I know of has done. Um uh, certainly not as systematically as we're doing it at the Signum University Press. There are now three, four, four, I think, um, works that are being published serially um, at the Signum University Press. So the first installment, actually, of, I think three of them, mine and two others, are going to go out tomorrow. Um, so really, really fun stuff. Yeah, um, exactly. Dickens is the one that people always remember. But the occasion of that was totally different. That is, like, the newspapers, like, the whole newspaper situation and, um, you know, him getting paid by the word and all, and all that kind of thing. Um, the Dickens, like, when Charles Dickens published something serially, it wasn't, like, it wasn't that you were, like, getting backstage in some way. You know what I mean? Like, it, it was, uh, anyway, it was not exactly the same thing. Um, but, um, uh, anyhow, yeah, so, <laughs> yeah, so, anyhow, uh, I encourage you guys to, um, um, uh, to look into that. Uh, now, 
The other quick thing that I wanted to make sure that you knew about is um, that Mythmoot registration is open. So Mythmoot is going to be happening. Mythmoot is our big annual conference, Signum University's biggest conference of the year. Um, this is our national, international conference. We have all of our regional moots where we're tra I'm traveling around um, and you know visiting different parts of the country. Uh, you know, in uh, you know m most months of the year. Um, and those are wonderful local gatherings, uh, you know, often quite small, which is great, you know, an opportunity to be able to connect with, you know, members of your extended tribe that live near you, right? And uh, we have a wonderful time together, both with us who are there able to attend in person and with people who come in uh, remotely uh, through the hybrid presentation that we do. But Mythmoot uh, is awesome. So Mythmoot, um, we're going to be... Um, uh, it's Mythmoot 10 this year. Homeward Bound is our theme. Uh, and we're going to be meeting at the usual time at uh, uh, the last weekend of um, uh, uh, the, the last weekend of June. That's the month I'm looking for. June. Yes, exactly. Uh, June 22nd to 25th. Um, and uh, uh, it's just it's just a wonderful time. I, I, I can't even um, sort of convey how sort of wonderful the family environment is there. And speaking of family, by the way, one of the things that we're doing at Mythmoot this year, uh, which is going to be brand new at Mythmoot this year, um, is we're doing uh, tracks for kids as well. So come and bring your children. Um, we're doing tracks for several different age uh, uh, ranges of kids. Um, we had a, a, a bunch of families with young kids show up last year, which is so cool. We had a great time with everybody's family, even though we didn't really have things prepared uh, for kids. We didn't. We weren't really we weren't really looking for that last year. Um, but we sort of improvised and, uh, and everybody kind of pitched in. It was a lot of fun. Um, we had so much fun doing that, that we're planning for that this year. So we have a whole kids area, um, at Mythmoot this year. So again, just, uh, strongly encourage you to, um, uh, to, to look into coming to Mythmoot if you can. It's in, uh, D just near DC, near Leesburg, Virginia, uh, right near Dulles airport. Um, so it's relatively convenient to fly to. Um, it's in a convenient part of the country, or at least a part of the country, which is equally inconvenient <laughs> to everybody in the world. Um, uh, so anyway, I encourage you to, I definitely can, I encourage you to look into that. Um, but um, uh, yeah, so all right, um, let's get back to the text here. So We've started, we've gotten the proposal to start a fire. But though they had brought wood and kindlings by the advice of Boromir, it passed the skill of elf or even dwarf to strike a flame that would hold amid the swirling wind or catch in the wet fuel. At last, reluctantly, Gandalf himself took a hand. Picking up a faggot, he held it aloft for a moment, and then, with a word of command, Naor in Adraith Amen, he thrust the end of his staff into the midst of it. At once, a great spout of green and blue flame sprang out, and the wood flared and sputtered. "'If there are any to see, then I at least am revealed to them,' he said. "'I have written, Gandalf is here, in signs that, can be, that all can read from Rivendell to the mouths of the Anduin.' But the company cared no longer for watchers or unfriendly eyes. Their hearts were rejoiced to see the light of the fire. 
the wood burned merrily, and though all round it the snow hissed and pools of slush crept under their feet, they warmed their hands gladly at the blaze. There they stood, stooping in a circle round the little dancing and blowing flames. A red light was on their tired and anxious faces. Behind them the night was like a black wall. But the wood was burning fast, and the snow still fell. Okay. Um, all right, very good. Okay, so I want to start at the end and then move back up towards the top. Um, so in that, well, second to last paragraph there on this slide, we get another wonderful example um, of those moments of which we've seen many in this chapter where we are being given, we're not being just told what is happening. The emphasis is on what the people who are there are feeling and experiencing, right? They're not, and not just their feelings, but their sense of the situation. Remember that wind, for instance, right? That cutting east wind. Um, and it's not that it was you know, just symbolic or just allegorical, but just, but similarly to when Frodo was in Rivendell and he was looking out and seeing that red star in the Southern sky, um, which was clearly making him think of Sauron and his vigilance down in the South, you know, the, the fiery mountain in the South that he was going to be headed towards. Um, so too, I think, you know, the wind that was cutting through, all of their warmest gear and uh, freezing them, freezing their hearts as they were marching south in the cold. That east wind, again, it's it's not that Sauron was sending the east wind. It's not that it's just a symbol for the east wind. It's not like, you know, not, not allegorizing the thing. Um, but not only did we get a, um, did we get a sense of, what they felt, right? Again, like what they were experiencing and what their emotional reactions were. We also got a sense, as it were, of like their um, their larger sense of their situation, right? The hust thinking of being keenly aware of this, you know, of, uh, of, of, of the idea of hostility from the East. And I think that we can see a similar thing happening here. The company cared no longer for watchers or unfriendly eyes. Their hearts were rejoiced to see the light of the fire. First, we just have this description of the rejoicing of their heart. Their hearts were rejoiced to see the light of the fire. Notice his use of the passive voice here. Um, he doesn't say the light of the fire rejoiced their hearts or something. Their hearts were rejoiced is we don't use that word that way anymore. Um, uh, nobody talks about, I don't think anybody, occasionally people, especially at church, might rejoice, like as an active verb. Um, but to be rejoiced about something is a, um, a more, uh, a, a much less common modern usage, um, their hearts were rejoiced to see the light of the fire. Um, joy is being given 
to them. And again, it's it's a it's a passive construction. Their hearts were rejoiced. Um, you could have used it actively, like something rejoiced their hearts. Um, the way you could you could theoretically say, I believe the light of the fire rejoiced their hearts. Um, but he doesn't use it that way. He uses the passive voice in order to make their hearts the subject of the sentence, right? This is about their hearts. Um, uh, your English teacher might have told you that the passive voice was always bad and, like, wrong and you should never use it. That's a lie. Um, it is not true at all. Um, you can use the passive voice. The passive voice is a perfectly appropriate grammatical construction. You just have to use it sensibly and responsibly. Um, responsibly in the sense that you can use the uh, passive voice irresponsibly, as of course many politicians are wont to do, right? That is to say, when you use the passive voice to conceal the fact to conceal the doer of the action, right? Um, like when you say something like, mistakes were made, right? Because you don't want to admit that you made the mistake. So you keep yourself out of the sentence and just use the passive voice instead. When you're merely concealing the subject like that, that is often an irresponsible way to use the passive voice. Um, when you are uh, doing it in such a way as to confuse who is doing the action. That's, uh, that's, that's uh, not using it carefully. But what, a, what the passive voice does is it draws attention not to what is doing the action. It draws attention to the person, to the subject, you know, to the object rather of the action, right? What the object is being done to. This is a sentence about their hearts and what is being done to their hearts. Their hearts were rejoiced to see the light of the fire. Um, Notice how this corresponds with um, the Miravor before. When Boromir was earlier nudging Gandalf and Aragorn, hey, maybe, you know, like this cold is going to be, you know, the snow is going to be the death of the halflings, I think. Like maybe somebody ought to do something. Maybe somebody who's in charge, right, ought to uh, show some leadership and save everybody's lives. Um, and Gandalf's response to that was to pass around the booze, right? is to pass around the Miravore. Um, in other words, his priority was... Now, we don't know the full properties of Miravore. It may well be that the Miravore had some physical recuperative powers, um, as well as the spiritual and emotional recuperative powers that they felt right away. So it may well be that they were being strengthened in ways that would not be obvious, uh, you know, to people who have never had Miravor before. Um, um, however, um, so again, that was, that was Gandalf's first inclination. Then, of course, when Boromir comes back in the slide we were looking at last week and was like, so, how about um, maybe some fire? What do you say now to fire, right? Let's, uh, let's also try saving our bodies as well as keeping up our spirits. But once again, even when the fire is lit, the thing that gets emphasized first is the state not of their fingers and toes, but of their hearts. We'll get around to their fingers, right? Um, and by extension, to some extent, their toes. Um, but, um, uh, but yeah, they, um, 
The first emphasis, their hearts were rejoiced to see the light of the fire. The wood burned merrily. It's about the merriment of the, uh, the watching the, the fire is cheerful in the middle of the storm. Um, notice that they don't, it's not until the very end of this sentence. The wood burned merrily, and though all round it the snow hissed and pools of slush crept under their feet, they warmed their hands gladly at the blaze. We finally get a, something about them warming themselves at the blaze, right? Um, but that is not the first nor even the second emphasis about the fire. The first emphasis is on their hearts, rejoicing to see its light. Secondly, the wood, the, merry, the merriment of the wood burning. The fire itself, the wood itself seems to be merry about this, right? Everybody's happy about this. Well, not everybody. There is one entity which is not happy, right? And that is the snow. The snow which is trying to entrap them. The snow which is trying to smother them and freeze them and destroy them. Yes, Karathras does not like um, this development. The snow is hissing. Now, it does that, right? You take some snow, a little bit of snow, right? And put it into the fire and it will hiss. Um, but we can also, it's like we can hear the, the hissing of uh, disapproval, um, even of pain in some sense. Pools of slush crept under their feet. Um, the snow which was mounting up their legs is now melting down into water and slush um, under their feet, right? No longer up over their feet, as was being described before, as we were watching the snow creep up the legs of Bill the Pony, remember? Um, and now it's subsiding. Now they're on top, and it's underneath, and now in slush. Um, and they're warming their hands. And once again, gladly, the adverb here once again emphasizes, just as the very first sentence of description there emphasized, um, the rejoicing of their hearts. Um, they're glad, certainly, to warm their hands, which were cold, right? But once again, it's the gladness that they are feeling. Um, yeah, Gilgo Lady, almost certainly. Um, uh, their booted feet. Um, I, I think there is simply no reason to believe whatsoever that the four hobbits are barefoot um, uh, in the snow here. Um, that, I think, uh, Tolkien believed to be a silly idea. You have to remember that hobbits are meant to be our kin, which is one of the things I just talked about in the first chapter of my book. Um, hobbits are meant to be our kin, um, they have bodies that are different from us in some ways, most notably height um, and to some extent furriness, uh, but they, their toes would get frostbite. They have leathery soles to their feet that does not keep their toes from getting frostbitten in the snow. Um, they are certainly wearing boots, as, Bil as 
Tolkien explicitly said that Bilbo wore boots and depicted him wearing boots. Um, the idea of a hobbit on a long journey like this going unshot, I can't even believe that they would leave home at all unbooted. Um, hard for me to imagine that uh, they didn't bring boots with them when they left the Shire. Um, but anyway, um, yeah, yeah. Um, I know it's fun to think of them barefoot. I know it is. Um, but, um, yeah, yeah. Um, exactly. Uh, good books of the, of, of Marish make. Yeah, I agree, Matt. I'm sure they would. Um, yeah. Um, anyway, so yes, um, but I, although, the, you know, their boots are not described explicitly. There they stood. Now, watch again this, the construction here. So we get that lead up to them warming their hands gladly at the blaze. And now watch what happens. There they stood, stooping in a circle round the little dancing and blowing flames. There they stood. Notice how he is, the narrator is like addressing us, right? There they stood. He points to them. Um, we're being invited to picture them. This is a this is a visual image we're being we're being asked to construct in our minds. There they stood, stooping in a circle round the little dancing and blowing flame. So what are we picturing? We're picturing them all facing each other with their backs to the darkness and the snow and the cold and with the fire in the middle. A red light was on their tired and anxious faces behind them. The night was like a black wall. Now, of course, again, this is a um, a thing that anyone who has been outside with a fire will have often noticed, right? That the, you know the, the night might not be completely dark, though in a storm like this, it would be pretty close to completely dark. Um, but if you light a fire, then outside the fire begins to look completely dark, right? Um, yeah, Aranos, exactly. Their focus has turned turned toward the fire and the group, right? Towards the fire and each other, yes, rather than the world and the external threat. We're getting this... It's, do you see, you see why I was connecting this with things like um, the red star that Frodo sees and that east wind that was blowing through? It isn't exactly, or it isn't exclusive... Again, I'm not trying to merely um, you know, say this is just symbolic or something like that. Um, but there is a symbolic element to this, right? We're being invited to picture this and to picture not only what it looked like, not even what it felt like with the slush and the, uh, the warmth on their hands and, um, what they would have seen, right? When they look across the fire, what do they see? A red light on the tired and anxious faces of their friends, right? That's what they see. Um, so they see, they feel their hearts are rejoiced. They're warming their hands gladly. And yet they can still see on each other's faces, faces their weariness, their anxiety. Um, they're certainly not out of danger yet. Um, and, they all know, and they all know that they're not out of danger yet. And yet, um, we haven't forgotten the rejoicing and the merriment of the flames. Um, and outside, the night is like a black wall. The hissing of the snow, right? The hostility and the darkness that surrounds them. And yet, here in this little ring, um, 
in this little ring that is their company. They are, well, not safe, exactly. Not exactly warm, not exactly comfortable. But they're surviving, right? Um, and they are shutting out the night. Um, and yes, they can see that they are not alone either in their joy or their fear. Oh, Maria, I agree. I agree. Um, yeah. Um, I like to think that uh, that that Bill is uh, with them, warming himself by the fire. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, and then that wonderfully ominous and suspenseful paragraph, but the wood was burning fast and the snow still fell. They have not defeated the mountain. It's not like the mountain is giving up. The enemy that is trying to kill them, and there is an enemy who is trying to kill them, has not yet stopped. At most, what they have done is held it at bay for a little bit, just as the darkness is being held at bay by the fire. And again, if you've been outside with a fire, you know, as your wood runs out and the fire burns down, the darkness, that wall of darkness that gets pushed back by the fire comes in, right? Um, but the wood was burning fast and the snow still fell. Um, and yes, we know, Zeev, they don't have much wood. They brought as much as they could carry. Boromir suggested they each bring a log, right, um, up with them. Or a bundle of logs, uh, like a bundle of sticks. Um, I believe that the word faggot used to describe firewood, um, which was a fairly common word in that context in the first half of the 20th century, not so much anymore. Um, I believe it could mean either a either like a, a log or a bundle of sticks, I think. But I'm not 100% sure about that. Um, in any case, they don't have very much wood because they were carrying it. And although Sam volunteered Bill to take a bit more, um, uh, they uh, don't necessarily have um, much, especially under these circumstances. Um yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. And yes, um, uh, JJ, you were right that that is where the um, British slang for cigarette comes from. That's why they call cigarettes fags, because that's short for faggot. Like, it's like a little log of firewood, right? A little, little log that you set on fire. Um, that is where that came from. Um, but um, anyway... Um, but, uh, yeah, yeah. So anyhow, um, normally when it's used in other situations, this is not the only place it's used in, in Tolkien. And when it's used in other places, I think it means usually a single stick, like a single log, um, and not a bundle of sticks. But as I say, I, th I'm, I, I think that that can vary. I'm not completely sure. Um, but, um, anyhow, uh, let's go back. 
Let's go back. So I wanted to start with that image because I feel like th- this this is where this is where this passage leads us, right? And I wanted to make sure that we got this tableau, um, these kinds of tableaus that we've been getting, these kinds of description tableaus. Um, Tolkien accomplishes a lot with these. First of all, he loves these in part because don't forget, um, Tolkien was a painter and. I think that it's easy to underestimate um, how important that was to him. I think he still tends in his imagination to look at things like a painter. And I think that there's a lot of evidence that much of his writing, in particular his written descriptions, are really fundamentally derivative of his eye as a painter and his seeing things as a painter. Him attempting to try to capture in words the same thing that he might, in other situations, try to capture uh, with paint um, or, you know, pencils or whatever implement he was using uh, for a particular uh, for a particular image. Um, And sometimes, of course, we have instances of him doing both, of him having painted a scene which he describes, um, uh, like uh, especially a landscape that he describes uh, in the book. So there's some moments where I think we can see him actually literally uh, doing both things. Um, but um, in any case, that's one thing clearly that we're being given here, right? Uh, I think that if he were, um, if Tolkien were to have done, and to my knowledge, he did not do a painting of this moment. If he were to try to capture um, on canvas the company on Carathras. I suspect that this would be what he would try to capture. The fire, the red light on their tired and anxious faces as they faced each other, the wall of night around them. Uh, a, a picture that would get you to, you know, to hear the hissing of the snow and feel the slush underfoot, right? I think that that paragraph is him trying to capture that. But, but as I say, it's not just visual imagination. We're also being told about... what they feel about their experience, about their whole kind of view, right, of, uh, uh, of what's happening there in this sort of semi or quasi, uh, symbolic sense, that broader significance as well, that is just, that is beyond merely what they feel about it. And instead like them, their awareness of their situation. And notice, by the way, the kind of progression there when the, East wind was coming in when there was this cold, horribly uncomfortable wind um, that was freezing cold that was coming in from the east that they hated very much because who I mean, a a, a cutting cold wind is truly uncomfortable when you're out in it. Right. For days. Um, But the fact that it was coming from the east is like, you know cruelly fitting, right? Again, not that Sauron is actually sending it necessarily. Um, it isn't literally an attack of the enemy. Um, but it, at the very least, feeds into their own understanding of the hostility that they're facing. Here, that general feeling has shifted into reality. Now they are surrounded by darkness, which it's almost like it hates them, because it does. They are being engulfed in swirling 
and uh, uh, and 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 heaping snow, as if the storm were trying to smother them and kill them, because it is right that vague sense of quasi symbolic hostility um, that we could see in that wind from the east still has that same effect, but it's now literally true as well. Um, Yeah. Yeah. So I think it's really neat what he accomplishes there. But let's go back to what Gandalf does and then how he describes it. Though they had brought wood and kindlings by the advice of Boromir, it passed the skill of elf or even dwarf to strike a flame that would hold amid the swirling wind or catch in the wet fuel. At last, reluctantly, Gandalf himself took a hand. Picking up a faggot, he held it aloft for a moment. So he holds up a stick. And then, with a word of command, he thrust the end of his staff into the midst of it. I've never been able to fully picture exactly what he's doing here. He thrust the end of his staff into the midst of it, meaning the pile of wood that they're trying to burn, right? Um, so he puts the end of his staff into the midst of it. Why does he hold up a stick of firewood into the air? Is he... Or is, or is the it the stick that he held up in the air? And then he's thrusting his staff into the midst of it? How do you do that? He holds up... Huh. Yeah, it would make sense if faggot in this case was a bundle of sticks. Because then you could have a singular faggot and yet it could have a midst into which you could plunge your staff, wouldn't it? Yeah, I think... Hmm. Is he holding both up? What? The faggot and his staff? Yeah. At once, a great spout of green and blue flame sprang out. Out of what, exactly? Out of the faggot of wood? Out of his staff? I don't think. It's... Like one could imagine at once a great spout of green and blue flame sprang out of his staff as if his staff were a flamethrower, right? But I do not believe that that's what's being described here because the wood flared and sputtered. Like So fire is springing out, I think, of the wood, which makes the wood flare and sputter um, in the flames. Yeah. Um, right, out of the hole he shoved his staff in? Yeah, something like that. Yeah, something like that. He thrust the end of his staff into the midst of it. Um, oh man, I apologize. <laughs> the people on Twitch 
are trying to talk about this, but Twitch won't let them uh, because it has that word flagged. Very understandably, mind. Like, I get that, but um, you can't really reason uh, with the uh, algorithm <laughs> in that circumstance, I suppose. <laughs> Sorry, I was just seeing that. <laughs> oh, anyway. Um, uh, yeah, yeah. Um, okay. Um, okay. All right. Yeah, I think it's, I think it's primarily, um, I think it's primarily, I think it's got to be a bundle in this case. I do. It can be either. I know. And in, again, as I say, in some usages, I think it's pretty clear that it's singular. Um, but I think it's got to be. Um, I think it's got to be a bundle. If that's the case, it's much easier to understand. Um, he... So he picks up a bundle of sticks, right? Holds it aloft, utters his word of command, um, then presumably, it doesn't say when he puts it down. It gets put down at some point, right? I think presumably, he holds it up aloft for a moment, says his word of command, puts it down. This is the step that's not explicitly said. Then he thrusts the end of his staff into the midst of the bundle. And at once, as soon as he does that, a great spout of green and blue flame springs out of the bundle of sticks, like around his staff, where he thrust the tip, the end of his staff into it. And then the wood flares and splutters, right? Um, okay. Um, yeah. Um, yeah, I was trying to remember exactly. I thought I remembered Christopher Tolkien gave a super literal translation of that. Um, can somebody look that up just to double check? Uh, Nancy says Google said that, and Google's often correct about these things, but I wouldn't mind double checking the book. In the Trees of Isengard, Christopher Tolkien translates Naur and Edrith Amen as literally fire be for saving of us. Um, okay. Um, yeah, I'm not worried about the singular or plural words exactly. Um, that, you know, he says with a word of command and then he says four words. Um, that I don't think is a problem. Um, it just suggests, yeah, the use, the usage of the word word in some other examples of how, you know, there's several people using examples of like, can I have a word in which they usually don't just mean they want to 
say or hear a singular word. Um, uh, yeah. Anyway, so he speaks a word of command. Gandalf has just done magic. This is significant as the number of places where you can point to a moment where somebody is doing magic right in front of you in the Lord of the Rings, it is very, very rare. Extremely, extremely rare. Um, notice there are three steps. There are three steps. Step one, hold wood up in air. Step two, utter the word of command. Step three, thrust the end of his staff into the midst of it. The staff seems necessary, right? I mean, he doesn't just, it's the word of command itself seems insufficient, right? I mean, it didn't burst into flame when he said the word of command. He said fire, and the fire did not obey, right? So it's more than just the word, his word of command there. The staff seems to be involved. Um, I... I say that because that might seem like super obvious, but this is something that I actually find a little bit confusing. Exactly what is the nature of the staff of a wizard? How is the staff of a wizard connected to his magic? Um, it is not at all clear to me, and this will be a shock to you, um, I don't think Tolkien was completely consistent about this. This seemed to be... His ideas about this seemed to sort of change over time. Um, he seemed to have a... Um, he seemed to have a... Um, a simple... A simpler idea about it. Like the power of the wizards was stored in the staff in some way. Is that still true later on? You know, I don't really know. Um, you know, JJ, I assume you're joking, but I think you're probably correct, right? JJ says there's a semantic component, a verbal component, and a focus. Classic D&D magic implementation. Um, I don't think that's a coincidence at all. Um, I think that this would be one of the scenes, not the only one by any, by any means, but I think that scenes like this were extremely influential um, in determining classic D&D magic implementation, actually. Um, the further back you go, I mean, I know many of you are old enough to know first edition uh, of D&D. Maybe you have a first edition D&D player's manual right at your elbow. I only have my second edition right at my elbow. But um, uh, but um, I wasn't allowed to have the first edition one. <laughs> that was the first one I bought for myself. Um, but anyway, um, the, the first edition 
of D&D is extremely Tolkien heavy. Very, very Tolkien heavy. Um, anyway. Um, okay. Um, yes, exactly how symbolic it is. As Matt says, it's a badge of office, to, office at least. Yes, it's at the very least a symbol of the authority of the magician. Yes, exactly. The question is... Um, how instrumental is it, in fact? Um, and exactly, Everett, when uh, we get to Hama and Grima's opinion about wizard staffs, are they right or are they wrong? Um, that's exactly one of the interesting questions, I think. Um, uh, yeah, yeah. Um, yes, I know Jack Vance was highly influential Wobe, on it, but, um, uh, yeah, yeah, very true. But again, there's so much Tolkien all over the place. Anyway, okay. Um, now, I am not bringing this up in order to fully explore that particular rabbit trail. Hama and Grima and the breaking of Saruman's staff and everything else. I just wanted to flag this for notice. Right. Um, and in particular, because this is going to come up again soon. Um, when watch Gandalf's staff through Moria, up through and including the Bridge of Khazad-dûm, right, we're going to get um, a significant amount of data about Gandalf's staff. And so I, wa I just want to make sure that we are noticing that as we go. So the first thing that we notice here... Um, is that this that it the fire is implemented by means of the staff when he thrusts the end of his staff into the midst of it that's when the spout of green and blue flame springs out okay um so we will see um we'll see <laughs> yes april says to be reviewed in the summer of 2023 and sometime in 2035 <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Um, we'll get back to it. Um, yes. Uh, the word of command I get. That's the easiest to understand part. That his magic, that what we would call magic in watching this, boils down primarily to an exertion of Gandalf's will, an, an assertion of his will over the material of Middle-earth, right? He is exerting the power of his will to alter the primary world around him. That's magic, right? And so that there should be a word of command there? All right, great. That makes perfect sense since surely the magic is an expression of his will, right? Okay. That, that will should be focused through a speech act seems okay. I can believe that, right? Um, he focuses his will through a word of command. Now in Edraith, Amen. Fire 
be the saving of us, right? Um, notice there what he's commanding. He's not just saying, let there be fire, right? He's not just saying, burn, or something like that, right? He says, fire be the saving of us. Yeah, he commands their saving. Yes, yes. Um, it does seem almost a prayer, JJ. Yeah, absolutely. It, it feels like that, doesn't it? Um, saving of us. Let this fire be the saving of us. It is, a, it is a word of command. It is an exertion of his will. And yet the framing of it is almost like a prayer. And it's, it's not just about the fire. It's about their saving. Um, the saving of them isn't exactly something he can directly command exactly. Um, I mean, kind of, in the sense that it's the choice between fire and death, and he's here choosing fire, right? Um, but, um, yeah. April. April's asking a very sensible question. Um, he has the ring of fire, the elven ring of fire. Is that helpful at all in this situation? Yes and no. I'm going to say both yes and no, um, like a good elf. Um, and here's the benefit of the wishy-washiness. Um, let me explain my reluctance. Because it would seem like that would be an obviously easy yes answer, right? Like, the dude who lights the fire has the ring of fire. Like, that should be relevant, you'd think. Um, even if the ring of fire's powers are not just, I mean, it's not just a, you know, a kindling or a flamethrower. I mean, it does more than just conveniently light fires. Um, obviously, um, but nevertheless, it would seem relevant, except the thing that always makes me hesitate is that there's no reason to think that it was at the time that this was written. Um, Gandalf's possession of the Ring of Fire is another one of Tolkien's retcon jobs. What that means is not that it's not relevant. It means you get it both ways. That is, we can see this by A, the fact that he hadn't thought of giving Gandalf the Ring of Fire by this time, um, or also, you could also to say the same thing, to look at the same thing from a different perspective, Gandalf's possession of the Ring of Fire is wholly unknown to us, right? Um, even if we overlook the fact that it was concealed from the author, it's certainly being concealed from us at this point, right? At this point in the narrative, we have no hint or clue that Gandalf has the Ring of Fire. And so, therefore, 
from within the world of the story, like from within the frame of reference that we have been given in this story so far. When we're reading this, we have no reason to think about that. So what that means is I always prefer to think about these things from the point of view, uh, ignoring that, basically. Um, thinking about what this means without the Ring of Fire. And here's the advantage. Then, when we do the retcon, right, at the end, when we're told that Gandalf has the Ring of Fire, now this new layer of meaning is retroactively superimposed. See, um, some authors just do retcon, right? That is to say, they just uh, do things or make changes in order to impose retroactive continuity on things. Um, Tolkien does more than just impose continuity, right? Um, he superimposes an entire new layer of meaning upon all of Gandalf's actions by, through that moment, right? Through that revelation. Um, and that's awesome. But I do think that if we do too much work as we're going through here to bring it to bear, to bring to bear on this text something that the entire book to this point has not revealed to us, then we risk missing what else was going on, right? If we just attribute to like, oh yeah, this is Gandalf using the Ring of Fire, right? Um, then we can kind of miss other things about Gandalf. Um, but, um, yeah, was the retcon post Fellowship of the Ring publication? Um, no, no, it was not. It wouldn't have been. Um, but you'll notice again, he's not gone back and added that or even alluded to it. Um, Compare and contrast. Um, compare and contrast with Arwen. Arwen, too, was a very, very late addition to the story. He hadn't thought of Arwen and didn't add Arwen to the story until near the very, very end of the story. And although he does not rewrite the whole story to make her a major character, and by the way, I totally believe she would have been a prominent character in the story had he had that story earlier on. You cannot ever convince me, no one will ever convince me, that Tolkien had decided to do a modern-day Baron and Luthien story in which Luthien stayed home and didn't contribute to the adventure. It wouldn't be a Baron and Luthien story in that case. When, at the very end... He decided not just to invent Arwen's character um, and to connect Aragorn to the elves in that way, but to lean into the Baron and Luthien parallel. I am 100% convinced that had he had time, I mean, even Tolkien knew it was too late to go back and start again, like he loved to do, right? But even Tolkien was too sensible to stop the story, you know, halfway through book six and go back and start the whole thing again, right? Um, 
so he didn't do that, right? But I'm 100% convinced that Arwen, had he had that idea of the parallel between Luthien and Arwen from the start, he would have made Arwen a very prominent character. Um, um, no, Aragorn singing the Baron and Luthien song was there. I, this is why where it came from, right? Um, that connection was already implicit in the story, and that's, I think, why he made the choice. It's, it's what led him to make the choice. When he was writing this story, he was going to have Aragorn marry Eowyn. That was plan A when he was writing the Rohan stuff. Um, but then he had this other idea. Um, but um, anyway, so I'm getting distracted here. Point is he did insert Arwen. We get that she exists. He went back and he made bit changes here and there, adding that Findigil paragraph that we talked about in Rivendell describing Arwen sitting at dinner, right? The reference to Aragorn standing next to Arwen, the, um, you know, the reference later on to, you know, in the discussion with Eowyn when Aragorn's like, you know, if I were to go where my heart is, I would be in Rivendell and all that stuff. Like, it's just... I mean, it's he's 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 only revised a total of like ten paragraphs in the entire story. But he went back and did that. He inserted those ten paragraphs, right, or revised those ten paragraphs so that all the way through the story we get some pointers at this story idea, the idea of the of the love of Aragorn and Arwen, um, which then culminates in the marriage at the end. Um. Sorry, spoilers. Um, but he and my anyway, the long winded point that I am making, he could have done that with a ring of fire if he'd wanted to. He could have done that with a ring of fire. Um, he doesn't do that with the ring of fire. Um, not in general. There are only one or maybe two references which could be interpreted that way. But he doesn't give us any hint. He doesn't give us any reason. And therefore, the conclusion that I draw from that is that he doesn't that he doesn't want us to be thinking about the Ring of Fire through most of the story. If he'd wanted us to, he could have. He could have directed us in that direction. He could have pointed to that. If he felt that our understanding of who Gandalf was and what Gandalf was doing would be enriched all along by even cryptic hints about the Ring of Fire, he could have made that. He could have done that, right? But he didn't do that. Um, so, um, since we have seen, you know, how he retcons things, and he didn't choose to do that here, I feel... I always feel resistant to explaining things in this text based on the Ring of Fire, or at least exclusively, or primarily. Um, again, it's not that I, I want to say, like, we must imagine that he doesn't have it. Because um, he does. It's part of the story. Like, he does retcon that back at the end. Um, but, but it feels to me that it is missing the point. Again, it's not the point that Tolkien emphasizes. Um, 
But um, anyway, uh, so yeah, little sidebar there, but um, uh, but there it is. Anyway, stay tuned because we're not too far away from one of those potential references to it. So we've got the staff, we've got the word of command. Now, can anybody explain to me why he holds it up in the air? I need an explanation for the semantic component. Why? Um, yeah. Um, Oh, Josh, the left. I'll come back to the capitalization of word of command in Moria. I have a theory, but... Uh, um, Oh, wait a second, JJ. Are you suggest to keep it away from his eyebrows? Um, uh, I think it'd be more in danger of his eyebrows than if he just left it on the ground. Um, so are you imagining, JJ, he's holding it in one hand and he's thrusting the end of his staff in while it's in the air? I was suggesting he puts it down and then puts the end of his staff into it. And he just didn't mention the putting it down part. But maybe not. Huh. Okay. Yeah, no, I mean, yeah, if we follow exactly what it says, that's what it says. He held it off for a moment, and then with a word of command, he thrust the end of his staff into the midst of it. Yeah. Presumably, while he was... Yeah, clearly we need to reenact the fire starting. Um, I can only imagine the waivers I'd have to sign at the NCC to uh, try to reenact this. Um, okay, so he lights it up in the air and he puts it down. Um, yes. There could be a number of practical answers to this. Like, I saw some people suggesting, you know, he's like getting the snow off it. He doesn't want to burn anybody. Um, yes. Um, those are all conceivable. But Tolkien's phrasing does not suggest that to me. Picking up a faggot, he held it aloft. Nor do I think this has anything to do with oxygenation. Um, he held it aloft. I come back, JJ, to the point that you made about how his word of command, his uncapitalized word of command, um, sounds like a prayer fire be the saving of us. Um, it seems to be a gesture. A gesture, possibly a gesture of defiance, Kierden's beard. Possibly um, uh, 
Yeah. Oh, and I certainly think it's overhead. Yeah. Um, if I'm okay, I was gonna pick up my copy of the War of the Jewels, but that's green, and it always gets me into trouble. Um, I'll pick up my cup. If I hold, if I hold my cup out like this in front of me, I'm not holding it aloft, right? If I do this, I'm holding my cup aloft, right? If I put it completely out of the picture, I'm holding it aloft. Um, he definitely is holding it over his head. It is a gesture like an offering or like a blessing. Yes, it looks like I'm blessing communion. Yeah, hello, here we go. Hey. Like a toast, you hold your drink aloft, um, not just out or whatever. Um, yes. Yeah, it looks like I'm blessing communion. Yes, Valoria. In other words, it looks like a ceremonial gesture, right? Yeah, it does sound like a ceremonial gesture. Again, that word, aloft. Um, he didn't just pick it up. He didn't hold it out. He held it aloft. Um, is he praying to the Valar? Val something like that. His words are yeah, I just had a thought that I've never had before. I don't know. I don't know. Could Frodo as narrator be misunderstanding? That is, maybe it's not a word of command. He holds the wood up and says words, which would be totally natural for hobbits to think is a spell. Gandalf's going to do a magic spell, right? And, but what he's doing is saying a prayer. Um, and it being granted. Now, um, the end of his staff, like the use of his staff, suggests that he is in some way, you know, instrumentally involved here, right? Um, that this is still about him, he, in some sense, right? That there is power coming from him or at the very least through him in order to light the fire here. And yes, we know he can light pine cones a la the Hobbit and of course the green and blue flame should remind us as several of you have been pointing out of course to his fireworks. Um, smokes and lights are things that Gandalf has always done in his magic. Um, but, um, no, no, I document the pine cones aren't just from the movie. That's in the book too. Um, and yeah, yeah, Vardendil, his words do sound very much like a prayer. Um, he's pointing with his staff to show where he would like his requested fire to go. <laughs> he holds up the wood. 
can I have some fire, please? You know, right there. <laughs> and then the fire comes out. I like that. I like that. Um... <laughs> Sorry, I don't know why I find that funny, but I find that really funny. The idea of him using a staff like a pointer, right? Um, yeah, yeah. <laughs> like a little laser pointer. Exactly. Um... Notice his commentary. If there are any to see, then I at least am revealed to them, he said. I have written Gandalf is here in signs that all can read from Rivendell to the mouths of the Anduin. I find that a shocking sentence. I have written Gandalf is here in signs that can, that all can read from Rivendell to the mouths of the Anduin. That's incredible. I know, no, I don't mean that literally. Like, I, I can believe it. It's not literally incredible. Let me go back instead with a gaffer and say it takes a lot of believing. But no, it's not that I'm unwilling to believe Gandalf. I'm just astounded at what he has said. Let's assume, Emily, for uh, argument's sake, that he's exaggerating, that there is some hyperbole here. And he, in a moment of fear and exasperation, might well be guilty of hyperbole, right? Um, but still, even assuming that his presence cannot be detected all the way to the mouths of Anduin, um, which is quite a goodly ways off, if we look at our map, we're, uh, here, right, above Moria Gate. Rivendell is kind of far away, but not nearly so far as the mouths of the Anduin. He's clearly not sighting a radius, you know, in leagues or something like that, right? As um, uh, I think that what he is talking about, the mouths of the Anduin, of course, are down south, like south of Mordor or, you know, level with south Mordor. Um, this would certainly include Saruman, April, no question about that. Isengard, well within radius. Again, He's not talking about radius. Don't picture, you know, an equal radius spreading out from Gandalf's current location, right? He's saying, I bet you that Elrond back in Rivendell felt that. I'm sure Saruman south of here felt that. And I'm sure all the way through Gondor and into Mordor, though the mouths of Anduin, it's a little bit ambiguous, isn't it? Is he hoping that it didn't quite reach Mordor? Or is Mordor kind of embraced in that, right? I don't really know. I mean, he seems to... Maybe he's... Um, um, maybe he's being... Right, Galadriel would certainly... Galadriel's near ground zero of this flare, right? Um, maybe he doesn't want to discourage our, everybody. Like, he doesn't... 
actually want to say, well, that's torn it. You know, Sauron definitely knows where we are now. Like that would be tolerably discouraging to everybody else, right? Um, and we do have precedents for trying not to mention Mordor, so it could be a gentle way for him to say it so people would pick it up trifle. Yeah, that was one of the other things that I was thinking. Um, yes, yes. Okay, so again, I don't... He's... It's not just about geography. It's about to whom it could have been revealed. Elrond, Galadriel, Saruman, Sauron, they all would have known this. He, at least, is revealed to them. Um, it's possible, movie Aristotle, that he means that the spies from those two areas would send news that far, but I don't think so. I don't think that Gandalf is worried about s spies. Um, because of what he said in the previous slide. That is, if there, is any, if there are any spies that can see them through this storm then they'll see them, fire or no, right? I mean, like, it's... I, it would take a level of, like, you know, supernatural perception that they couldn't possibly hide from no matter what they did, right? Um, if it were directed at them. So, uh, yeah, go ahead and light a fire, right? I, he's not... He's clearly not worried about mundane spies, whether they be, um, you know human or avian or whatever. Um, and notice he doesn't just talk about betraying them. It's not like the light is giving them away or something. I have written Gandalf is here. He has revealed himself. It's his himself and his power and therefore his presence that has been revealed. Um, we do get that reference to if there are any to see, JJ, which does seem important. Um, if there are any to see, then I at least am revealed to him. There is a a hope that maybe they're not looking that it won't, that it will go unnoticed. Um, I think we can see the same kind of thing. Um, I've written Gandalf is here in science that all can read. Not, you know, he doesn't say <clears throat> I have, um, declared that Gandalf is here in ways that everybody from Rivendell to the mouths of Anduin will perceive or something, right? You see what I mean? Like he's, there's an indefiniteness. He's written it in signs that all can read if they're reading the signs, but they might not be. There might not be any to see, maybe. If there are any to see, then I am revealed to them. I at least, not necessarily the whole company. They won't necessarily know that They'll know that I'm here, but they won't necessarily know anything else. Um, exactly, Kierden. All of those, if there are any to see, and I do agree with your quotation marks around see, it would seem that he's not just referring to literal sight here. It's just as he had suggested in the previous paragraph, the idea that anybody more than, you know, 
a hundred yards away, you know, a hundred meters away, uh, whatever can see a spout of green and blue flame springing out of a bundle of sticks during, you know, at night in this snowstorm, right? I mean, they're not going to be able to see that. Um, snow, really hard to see through, right? So it, clearly he's not talking about literal sight. That seems to be metaphorical from the start there. If there are any to see, if there are any who can perceive it, then I will be revealed to them through the signs that can be read from Rivendell to the mouth of the Anduin. Um, yeah, Michael, that's exactly what I don't know. Um, perhaps the contingency is whether anyone who can see have their attention turned on the mountain. Yes. But that's another thing that puzzles me about what he says. In signs that all can read. That sounds like Aragorn following signs like when Aragorn read the sign of the elf stone on the bridge that Gorfindel left for him. Right? I shall take this as a sign um, that we can pass the bridge in safety. Um, reading signs is like a tracker thing to do. Um, if somebody else is picking up on the stimulus in real time, I don't think he'd use that phrase. Or rather, if that's the only way, right? Like, I just set up a flare, but maybe they weren't paying attention at this moment. Maybe their attention was not directed here, and if it wasn't, they won't, they won't have noticed. It, it will go unnoticed. That would be... This would be... Signs that all can read would be an odd way, I think, to describe that kind of situation. But maybe he just means... Maybe he's just pointing to the fact maybe he's being hyperbolic about the geographic range from which people could read him. We talked about that. I think his characterization I have written Gandalf is here is surely hyperbole. Right? He hasn't actually written Gandalf, it's not like that's actually written in the sky, right? I had always pictured this as um, sky writing, you know? Like, when he said that, uh, you know, I've written Gandalf is here, right? I had pictured it as, like, sky writing. Um, uh, but he's not literally done that. So maybe when he talks about reading signs... What he means is anybody who can see, anybody who's paying attention and can perceive what I've done will know it's me. They'll be able to figure out that it's me in a heartbeat, right? Oh, somebody just, uh, you know, whatever, however the mode of perception is, right? Oh, I perceive that somebody just um, struck magical fire. Uh, on top of Karathras. That has Gandalf written all over it, right? Um, very characteristic of Gandalf. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, so, again, people who have any knowledge of him 
they wouldn't perceive Gandalf directly. Again, what he's imagining here, it's not like the spies. He's not imagining somebody literally seeing them or seeing him. They're going to perceive what he's done, and from it they will be very easy. They will they will very easily be able to conclude. Oh, that must have been Gandalf. Gandalf must be on Carathras. Yeah, interesting, right? Um. Yeah, yeah. Um. Yeah. Um. Well, well, I think he is suggesting that there would be deduction involved there. I think that's what reading the signs points to. Um, I think that what he's saying is that the deduction would not be a hard one. That anybody who knows anything is going to be able to deduce Gandalf is here in a heartbeat. Um... Had he done something else, maybe, right? Had he exerted his power in some other less Gandalfian way, then um, what would the Elvish form be? Mithrandirian way, I, I suppose. Um, had he had he performed some other feat of magic that was less Gandalfian, maybe there would be some ambiguity. Right, maybe somebody would be like, "Yeah, one of the Astari seems to be up in Carothras." Right? Um, could be Radagast, though. Can't rule it out. Um, yeah. Well, I agree that the sign is the exertion of power, but it's not just written that a wizard is here. He's written Gandalf is here, um, and I, I, I and it is we have to admit, a particularly Gandalfian exercise of power. Um, yeah. Oh, man. Look at the time. It's late already. Um, let me just end by saying that... For all of these other details, trying to figure out... Because I, I feel like I've never understood Gandalf's words here, really. Not fully. But we've been almost taking for granted um, the rather remarkable fact that his exertion of power is going to reveal him, and therefore them, you know... Um, potentially to the enemy, certainly to Saruman, right? I mean, if anybody can pick it up, it's got to be one of his peers, right? Um, that's really interesting. Why should that be? How do we understand that? Um, what, did this, what does this tell us about how wizardry works? So the two things together. First, this fact. This fact that his presence and even his identity is at least indirectly revealed. 
by his exertion of power. That that is something that has a ripple effect which can be picked up by, um, you know, which can be noticed by many. Um, that's one fascinating fact. The other is the ceremonial and prayer-like nature of the lighting ritual here. Um, which I'd never really thought through, but it is very difficult to avoid when you look at this. At the end of the day, he clearly is exerting power. And he clearly is exerting power which is sufficiently characteristically Gandalfian um, for undesirable people, even from quite far away, to be able both to detect it and to deduce that it's him. But... Um, but that doesn't change the prayer-like nature of this. Um, at the very least, Gandalf is exerting power, but he is exerting power in a way and through a mechanism that looks like prayer. Um, yeah. Um... I think at the very least, it just tells us something about Gandalf. About who he is, and how and why he exerts power. Tolkien is very clear about the fact that exerting power over the primary world is a sketchy business. That is not good. That kind of magic? Dangerous. Um... And I don't want to get into the whole magia versus goitia thing. Um, two different Latin words for magic. Um, but exerting your will over the primary world is sketchy at best. Um, but. And so therefore. Not but. And so therefore the attitude in which Gandalf does exactly that in this case seems to me important. Um, even if it is his own native power, his own characteristic signature, as it were, magic that he's using. Um, yeah. Yeah. Well, see, that's it, Amorim. Amorim says Gandalf doesn't exert power. He asks for it and uses it for others. Yeah, except he is exerting power. But he does... So I, so I don't think he actually is just saying a prayer. I don't think he's just pulling a little miniature, colorful, you know, Elijah on Mount Carmel here. I, I saw several of you making that parallel before, and I, um, I like that parallel. But I, I don't think that's what's happening here. For those of you who don't know the reference, um, Elijah in... Um, Second Kings? I think it's in Second Kings. Um, uh, no. Chronicles? Second Kings. Anyway, sorry. I forgot. I think it's in Second Kings. Um, uh, Solomon. No, Solomon. Elijah. Uh, in, uh, in the Old Testament. Let me just say that. Um, it prays for God to light a sacrifice, and he does. There's more to the story than that, but that's the simplest version of it. Um, I 
Um, I don't think that's what's happening here. If it were, I don't think Gandalf would be saying what he says there. Why would he be revealed? Right? Somebody else going to be like, oh, the Valar and or Iluvatar himself have exerted power on Karathras um, of exactly the kind they do when Gandalf asks them to. Like, that doesn't really make much sense at all. Um, but, um, yeah, yeah. Um, I have to think about this more. Anyway, but that was fascinating. Thank you guys uh, for joining me in this contemplation here tonight. Um, we will um, probably continue some of this discussion next time, and then we will move into the end. The snowstorm will come to an end next week, which will be very exciting. All right, but it's late, and it's field trip time. So thanks for joining us for the our text discussion here this evening. And we are going to go back on our field trip. How are you this evening, Glory? I'm doing great. Glad you could join us. So you weren't here last week. And um, yeah. uh, so I was going to have to field trip without you. And then my power went out like 10 minutes before I was going to field trip. So... Ooh. Yeah. Well. That's still inviting people. Okay. There we go. All right. So, uh, you have a good time at Oz? I did. Yeah. Australia was fantastic. Had a How wonderful was the time. Incredibly hot. <laughs> Incredibly hot. Yeah. It is, um, it's, it wasn't just summertime. It was hot summertime. It was, uh, uh, yeah. It was summer. It was like summer in Florida. So, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, got to be in winter in Florida. I was at Disney World. Yeah, no, that's my dad's very cool. Birthday. And uh, I finally got to see the the new Star Wars here, the Black Spire Outpost at oh, cool. Hollywood Studios. And it was so funny because I was sitting in the uh, st sitting in the tunnels. Uh, you know that the, the the waiting to get on on the ride, uh, that big new the big new ride that's down there. whose name escapes me. All of a sudden, but um, like I found myself analyzing like the walls of the cave and like the electronics and all the equipment and trying to figure yeah. out the story just like we do. Exactly. This stuff and Lord of the Rings Online. I'm sitting there going, ah, blaster mark. Something came through here. Really That's low, it. So I think it was a wild creature that came through here. Only stormtroopers can be so precise. <laughs> yes. But it was like my husband caught me doing it. And it's like, is this what you do on your on your radio show thing? And I'm like, yeah, yeah, yeah. So yeah kids were making fun of me. <laughs> but it was fun. I got a pilot at Corellian Freighter. That was like childhood dream achieved. Yeah. Awesome. Awesome. Okay, so we're going to head back to Sarn Ford, right? Mm-hmm. All right. Uh, see if I remember where that is. Yep, Sarn Ford car a lot. There we are. Yeah. 
little outpost so we did some looking around here before right mm, a little bit like we just crossed the river and we oh were that's right no we were going to last week and then we didn't okay right yeah, yeah okay yeah. so 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 we have a ranger camp with a real life ranger kneeling next to the fire which is great um and like, who's this guy supposed to be he kind of looks rangerish Actually, his outfit is very close to the Rangers of Athelion. Yeah? He's a little cleaner than most of the Rangers. Like, his greens are still bright, and they haven't faded to sort of olive brown. Yeah, well, but like I said, those Rangers of Athelion are gorgeous. I know because Grifflet has just been pining after their cosmetics for weeks now. Um, yeah, yeah. As I've been doing uh, Athelion and Osgiliath. Um, Isn't it so pretty up there? Yes, yes. Um, but it's mostly um, their, uh, their hunter green surcoats that I have been uh, primarily admiring. But, um, uh, yeah. Um, <clears throat> all right. Um, so... We're heading out. So most of this stuff, I think, has, is modern, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, the, it looks that way. The stone wall, probably older. But it's not much of a, just, it's much more than just a road marker, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, these little hutments and things look modern. And probably... All the people that we see are all Dunedain people, right? Yeah, this guy too has yeah. the same cosmetics. So this is clearly the Dunedain outpost. They're the ones who hang out at Sarnford well, because, for reasons. yeah, this is one of the places where they've been posted, guarding the Shire for a really long time. So they've built, mm-hmm. you know, some. Pr- this is why Gandalf comes down this way to see if he can find Aragorn. Yeah, it'd be a good way to, at least if not finding Aragorn, get word with his people anyway. You can see most of the the rock structures here are probably taken from river rocks as well. Mm-hmm. Like, mm-hmm. They didn't go out of their way, they just used what was around. Right. But yeah, so we have a sort of semi-permanent ranger installation here. No, wait, we did come up here and we did, because we did see this, this is, this is looking familiar to me. We did see that one house, which looks like an old Arnorian um, oh, yeah. An old Arnurian yeah. summer home, right? And then it was the tower yeah, on the hill that we didn't get to. Yeah, this was pre. This is uh, before the macabre uh, Veltumshong of the Carlin. Yes. Yes. Okay. Now I want to get to that tower, but I'm seeing a gazebo off to the right. There's a gazebo. There's kind of a lot of ruins around here. I mean, this is a this is a fairly high ruins density that we're yep. seeing. Yeah. A lot of pieces of the old empire up here. Who's this? Who's this Who's, gentleman? He oh, is he's a, just a thief. thief. Okay. Oh. Okay, and this is a, a dwarf and a dude. 
Okay. They look like uh, lone landers, or you know, like they look like the people we see in the lone lands. Refugees. Clearly, an Arnorian gazebo. Look at this with the. Oh, a grouse! There's a grouse over here. Oh, that was a grouse. I thought that was a chicken. Oh, it's a grouse. Hill grouse. This is somebody's pet, or is this yeah. just walking around? Just walking around. Really? Yeah, little prairie chickens. Huh. Okay. The looking at the ruins on the like the fallen down remnants on the ground. This is just the rest of the gazebo, probably, right? Yeah, I think so. Um, yeah, it's got the vine motifs, all that stuff. Okay. A little bit more lichen than some of the other ones. So there wasn't anything else here. This is just a gazebo on a hill. So yeah, this well, is just a beauty spot. Yeah. I right? mean, it's, it's a nice view, and it's in view of the big tower over there. Right. So this is probably like a picnic location for whoever was in that tower. Yep. Oh, and look, they got a real fire, not a metaphorical one. Oh, yeah. Yeah, exactly. They got a real fire. Yeah, I was oh, looking at the statue on the gazebo, but I couldn't see. I thought it was one of those, like, doesn't have any... Uh, okay. Just from the angle I was looking at, it still has no head, but I thought I had no arms either, but its arm is just in... Staff and sword, huh? Mm -hmm. Yep. Hmm. So, Loremaster. Yeah. Well, yeah, but... um, Okay. So, it doesn't look like a king or anything necessarily because it's that's staff not scepter yeah. that's interesting let's see if we can maybe we'll come across let's go towards the tower because i'm assuming that this gazebo is attached to the tower not literally attached but i'm assuming it was again a, a little picnic spot for the people who lived in this castle and maybe we'll see in here in in this place maybe we'll see some other statues of that kind. Wild poppies and hill grouse. Okay, and we've just got mostly animals and oh, thieves and a few hawks. Oh, look at this. Well, this is this is prime. This is they got good hunting out here. Like, yeah, yeah. we were talking about it being a hunting lodge, weren't we? Like right. Yeah, that other lodge. one. Yes, exactly. Oh, yeah, you got your you got your. Your grouse, you got your doe out here. Who's this? An orc scout? Okay. Yeah. Ooh, like look at the look at the brown stone. Oh yeah, you can tell they took it from the local stone here. Yes. Architectural style doesn't look strikingly different, even though the color of the stone is. I don't see many stars. I'm still assuming Arnor until proven otherwise. The only question is whether it's uh, part of the uh, we specifically. Got that big freeze over the lintel again. That's where your stars are. It's in the big freeze over the lintel. Oh, the big freeze over the lintel? And... Okay, well, I'm just looking at the other side of my horse right now. I think we're close enough. I'm gonna dismount. Oh, it's hard to get a good view. This tree's in the way. Oh yeah, lots of stars. Lots of stars on the arches and everything. Oh, there, right. Okay, so that is the symbol of Cardolan then. Mm -hmm. 
Okay. So that answers my first one, though. My first question was just to make sure that this was a Numenorean ruin and not an Elvish ruin or something. Um, uh-huh. Which I was assuming, but, you know, don't want to just assume. But humans like these big old heavy looking boxy things. Right, exactly. Um, like the elves that look like they're made out of spun sugar. There was no direct evidence that the gazebo was specifically cardinal, and it was not built out of this stone. But, I mean, it probably was. I'm not assuming the gazebo necessarily predates the rest of this building. But... I'm trying to decide whether I think this was built in the same period as the one up to the north, what, Dol Ernil that we were looking at? The Yeah, the, the stars on the sort of otherwise very plain Doric columns, just like the star speckling's are almost a little garish. Um, in the colonnades? Oh, here? in the colonnades, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. These, oh, right, these, up, uh, up, up, uh, yeah. boring-looking columns, they just they 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 baroked the heck out of them. Yeah, they kind of did. You're right. And they're all pointing up. Yep, all pointing up. They definitely wanted people to know that they are descended from Numenorians. Yeah. But if it ain't baroque, don't fix. Yeah, yeah. Somebody did that one. If it ain't baroque, don't fix it. But it, but you can't. Um, but you can see the, though. right? But you can see the distance between them and the Numenorean, like their Numenorean ancestors. Yeah. By the inversion I mean, of a, the star. It's a gorgeous colonnade, though. I mean, we don't think. I don't think we've seen many things like. No, this, this is though. nice. I doubt these trees were here. It's very idyllic, though. Yeah, I think this was a nice open garden, which tells us something. Have that, yeah, it doesn't have that mausoleum feel of the other stuff. That's true. That's true. This Most of the like other a- constructions that we saw, we were like, uh, you know, is this a living people or dead people place? Yeah. This, this is nicer. Tell. Yeah, it's alive. It's got lots of open, like... This isn't a torn down wall here. This is a nice open wall. It's it's you get this beautiful view everywhere. Yeah. Beautiful countryside. Yeah. Big old red rock jutting out of the back like Uluru. Okay, we still Oh yeah, the tower has a tower on it. Notice something interesting. The tower symbol of Cardolan. Yeah, this is the clearest I think we've seen it. I can see more details on that tower image than I've ever really looked at before. Look at the base of the tower, how it has that sweeping staircase going up to the main door at the bottom of the tower. In the image, right? Huh, yeah. Um, which looks like the base of Orthanc. That is to say, the tower here seems to be like a freestanding tower like Orthanc, not just a tower like there is no such you know approach to the tower that we're looking at like the tower on which this tower has been carved right um yeah 
because it's just it, right. It's it's part of this whole construction, but that's not what we see in the picture, right? So there seems to be a tower, a singular tower. I remember. Um, I remember that someone was suggesting that perhaps that might have been Amonsul. Yeah. Oh, I see there is a plaque at the bottom, isn't there? Yeah, there's a plaque here. It's called the Oath Plaque, an ancient plaque with time-worn writing. I see there's a number of... um, Ravaging of Cardinal. The Ravaging of Cardinal. Is it a a deed, I assume? Mm -hmm. Maybe, let's see if it gives us any info if I click on it here. Nope, you have discovered Oath Plaque. Okay. Well, hang on. Let's see. Thanks, Tower. All right, so the. Um, oh, come on. Where am I? There's probably deed text, right? Hmm. Area door. Yeah, what's saying the deed log? No. Freeland Shire Finland. Um where are you? Okay, let's see. Uh I don't know where it would be. Um Okay, Area yeah door, I did fourth tab from the left. Area door, fourth tab from the left. Swan Fleet uh, and Cardolan, thank you. Okay. Uh, the Ravaging of Cardolan. There it is. The worn and weathered by time, you were able to make out a few words inscribed upon this plaque. They seem to allude to the oaths that were sworn here hundreds of years ago when the hill folk were forced to submit to Dunedin King. Okay. And the other one is the stone seat, which we saw, the big one that looked across the... Yeah, yeah, towards that tower. For once decorated with rich tapestries and lush carpets lined the floors. From here ruled the princess and one regent princess of Cardolan. So that was the that was the big palace out there. Well, I wonder what the deed log's archaeological evidence for the carpets is. I didn't see any evidence of carpeting. Well, no, that was... <laughs> I'm sure it would have disintegrated by now, but... Exactly. So. I don't know. We've seen some pretty cruddy carpets in Angmar. Exactly. They seem to hang around. Okay. The Oak celebrates when they kicked out the hill people and built a leisure palace? That's That's... like Emperor's New Groove kind of evil. I know. I'm having... I'm struggling with that, because... Yeah. It's my birthday present to me. The view is spectacular. Nice uh, view, truly. Yeah. I want. So, which way are we facing? We're facing north. Oh, yep. So that what was that ruin that we're seeing out there is not the one that we were looking at. That would no, be so. probably over this South. way. Yeah, maybe. Oh, there's the gazebo. Yep, yep, yep. There's okay, the gazebo. Okay, so there's and... the gazebo that we saw, which means that off to the right 
There it is. There's the ruin. Yep. Okay. To the right of the gazebo. Out over here, it? Yeah, well, it did close up too. I think it is. Yeah. And there's the Brandon well, one. So. It was possible it was just grungy, but from here yeah. you can see a lot clearly that all the dark marks are on the top. So that was just a thing. I can't really make okay, out There's another ruin on that hilltop there to the east of here. And then there's that other ruin up in the north of here. Yeah. Okay. I wonder if the hillman took some of this back later. That seems possible. Um, the chaps that are up here, that were up here, looks like they've been cleared out, um, look like brigands. Mm -hmm. They certainly don't look like a returning hill tribe or anything. Okay, we can't see anything no. this way. Got those trees. I think what we've seen of them, we saw in the graveyard with the big old monuments. Yeah, these but are outlaws. Are the, the Eglame, though, are technically like descendants of them though just like maybe right right maybe okay I mean, they, they don't live in their waddle and daub houses anymore but well so far as we can see this is certainly the most physically prominent of all of the structures in this whole southern part of Cardolan. Mm -hmm. um because we can see a fair bit we can see up past the road. So I think we're seeing the whole, like, southwestern chunk of Cardolan from here. Yeah. And I'm not seeing too much in the way of more prominent ruins. Of course, one of the things that I'm looking for is if there's any evidence of that tower, which is taken as the symbol of Cardolan. Um, I still mm -hmm. think Amonsul is a good working theory. But it doesn't yeah. look like Amonsul in-game Amonsul. Because it doesn't have... Like, you th like Amonsul had all of those buttresses, right? Yeah. yeah. Which are all still there. Um, and, of course, it was famously on the hill, on Weathertop. And this image of a tower... I mean, it doesn't have anything below the tower, but it certainly does not suggest that this is a tower built on the hill like Weathertop. Um that heavily buttressed hill or tower on the hill. It looks like a tower. It looks like Orthanc. It's not yeah, Orthanc. It it's shaped differently. And it's got the four pointy bits like an Enuminous tower. Um, yeah. But I don't I recall seeing that anywhere. I'm pretty sure it's the big spy, temple spire in Numenor. I mean, that would be the most obvious explanation. Maybe. This is just a symbol they kept with them the whole time. Maybe. Well, except it's late, though. I mean, the Cardolan stuff would all be after, um, yeah, you know, after the Civil still... Wars had begun. So it's hundreds of years after the establishment of Arnor. So we're, you know, we're the, you know, it, half a it's, millennium it's a, away from the exile from Numenor. I, I know, but it's still a culture, and it's still something they probably would have told in, in their tales and their books for hundreds of Agreed, years. but the, the star... The power of Again, like the star suggests, the upward-pointing star suggests the distance between them and the Numenorean legends. Like they're screwing the star up at this point. Uh, maybe it's some sort of message that they're the new Numenoreans. Uh, 
Oh, well. Maria, that's an interesting theory. That it could be the, um... The Elendil Stone Tower. I think somebody else was suggesting that, and I wasn't processing <laughs> what they were saying. Um... Sorry, I'm looking at the map for a second. Yes, the Austerian. Exactly. Oh, yeah. But that's... A fur piece from that's, here. Wouldn't that have been an elven structure? Um, yes. It would have been. Um, or at least amidst the elven towers. And... Fair. We don't know who they contracted out to. Yeah. I am, um, and I, I, I donate this idea freely to Standing Stone. When we get the Grey Havens, I want to be able to explore, um, the Elven Towers. And I want to find the Elosterian and be able to go up and the Palantir is there. And when you click on the Palantir, you get to participate in an instance of the fall of Numenor and the flight of the faithful or better session play session play Muriel that's what I want I want the fall of Numenor in a Muriel session play Wow. and uh, and then you drown at the end as Numenor falls sorry so I bequeath that idea to Standing Stone um, making those assets now. Yeah, yeah. But anyhow, okay. So, um, uh, yeah, okay. Well, all right. I am. I am seeing Amethorn. It so would be right. You the session play could begin with. Sauron convincing Farazan to go into the West and attack the West. And so you could be hearing the conversation between Farazan and, uh, and, and Sauron, and then you'd be left behind and you'd watch the Numenorians sail off, and then um, you know, you would be like running up the Minotarma. Oh man. As the waters start climbing. Uh, As the waters start climbing and the wave comes in. That final moment that you're at the top of the tower and you're just thinking, oh, poopy. Yeah. 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 Yeah, I'd want to play Sauron. That sounds great. I want to play Sauron. Sauron's a play calling it. Yep. You know, the tower that we're looking at the big tower, not the image of the tower. The big tower that we're looking at does look like the tower in the image. Not exactly. Yep. Nope. It looks like but, a, like they're aping it. Yeah, but if you look at... Yes, exactly. If you look at the way... Um, look at the... If the, um, you know, the embouchure in which this image is located, right? This whole um, arch business here in the middle. 
is that arch business in the middle. So you've got the base and the stairs leading up to the little door, right? And then you've got the end of the first section of the tower in the image now, right? And then you have this tall uh, thing, which is like the very, you know, embrasure in which this carving is sitting, right? And then up above that, you've got a third segment of the tower, just like we see on the tower before us. And then it flares out at the top, just like the tower on the image flares out, and then had the pointy bits up top. Yeah, it's almost like when you see Roman copies of uh, Greek sculptures that were done better. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Like they have, like how they can't have it freestanding, so the legs always got to have like a trunk, a tree trunk behind it, or something like that. Right. Or right. The arm has to be supported by a branch or a weapon or something because they couldn't get it to be freestanding without the arm snapping off. Right. Yeah, so. I don't think. I don't think that the tower in the image is representing this tower. I think it's the other way around. Yeah, I think that. Oh yeah. I think that that tower is their symbol. Um, that the tower is their symbol and they built this tower in imitation of that tower and that's why they've put this because we've not seen that we've only ever seen the symbol of the tower on the arches of doors and things before yeah Yeah. this is the first time I think that we've seen it on the yeah the pointy bits are kind of like Orthunk, but it's not exactly Orthunkian. It's more again. It's 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 um, a what would the adjectival form be? A numinastic, um, uh, a numen. Yeah, they're more a numinastic pointy bits. Well, we could say numenorian, but specifically like a numinous. Um, yeah. Yep. A Numenastian. That's exactly it, Stun Duck. That's what I like. Okay. Um, yeah. Movie Aristotle says it's interesting how the sun is over the tower like the star is over the image. Yes, we came here at just the right time of day for once. Look at that. Look at that. That is perfect. Well, that's technically a star. It is. No, it's a lady. Never mind. True. But, uh, so, yeah, so, like, considering we've seen a couple of towers by the Car- Cardolin- uh, Cardolingian Towers yeah. up here, Ugh, antics. Um, it really does feel like this is, like, the grand tower that they've been trying to mimic and recreate constantly and just mm-hmm. haven't, haven't really succeeded, which is why they keep doing it. It's like they're they're longing to restore themselves to glory by building this great design. Well, the interesting thing to me there is that like they're certainly recalling ancient glory, but mm-hmm. that they should be like I don't understand the relationship like in Cardolan at its peak. I don't understand the relationship between this city and Dol Ernil up in the north. Um, because Dal Ernil seemed to be where the throne was. There was a, a clear throne there. Um, yeah. Uh, this implies that this is not only for leisure, but it's also sort of a religious place. 
like a like a like a hmm. yeah well like like a house that... is a, more like in the sense of the house is appealing than right right I was just thinking about you know going back to the lovely um, you know colonnade and garden yeah. out here a little bit more sort of like monastic a little bit more like a retreat yeah um, yeah especially thinking about the party gazebo just across the field down there well, also you you don't get a culture of death without having deeply religious issues right right um though again as you say we haven't gotten any of that we haven't gotten any of the creepy mausoleum stuff down here not out here but this is how it starts Way too much funding. That's really interesting, then. Could that be the case? So, look at the map for a second. Looking at the map. The Eriador map. Because I'm looking at the Eriador map because I want want to think about Arnor that was. Right? So you've got Anuminus up here by Lake Eventim. And this is the capital of unified Arnor. Right? You know, Elendil's ruling here, and then Volondil's ruling here. And everything's everything's happy right then we get the schism and all that's north you know we've got the east the great east road clearly marked with the dotted line going through brie right north of that is and left of you know up to fornost basically is arthodyne and then to the right of fornost is mostly rudauer all the way down towards uh into the Lone Lands. And then Cardolan is southwest of Bree. Right? Yeah. So in the early days of the schism, they weren't necessarily constantly at war with each other, right? They kind of split and went their own ways. Yeah. We're in the southern parts of Cardolan, that is the furthest regions away from any other of the people of Arnor. Right. Um, maybe this is like an the old seat of power, right? Yeah. Maybe they build this first. The imitation of that tower is very suggestive, right? If the tower is, they've taken that tower as the symbol of their of their nation, you know, of the nation of the new nation of Cardolan. Um, so they they they've taken that as their symbol, clearly when they try to rebuild that tower, which is the very symbol of their kingdom, that's got to be of significance, right? Mm-hmm. But then maybe, as as you said, as this is how it begins, right? So as they move ever more in the disturbingly necro direction, they also migrate their seat of power up by Tirn Gorthod, which is the old burial site of the yep. ancient people and Sarkvorn, which is also an ancient burial site. And they pop themselves right down in the middle of these two ancient burial sites and say, no, this is where we're going to be because we're going to be like communing with slash channeling with slash establishing some other strange and sketchy relationship with the dead up here. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Interesting. Interesting. Yeah. I buy it. Okay. Well, it's a theory. Let's see what we see. We still have a lot of Cardolan to explore, so we may uh, we may unearth some other data that could inform this uh, 
um, differently. Yeah. Oh, hang on. Anarwin was suggesting a numenoid as the adjectival form, and that's even better. Uh, a numenoid. I, I love it. Um, um, okay. A numenoid. All right. So it is, however, very late. I've been very irresponsibly late tonight. So I'm going to let people go. Um, we will next time we will continue down across Ruddymore and see what we can see. Uh, they're heading generally towards Hearn. I don't know if we'll get all that far or if there's more stuff to discover in between. But that's where we will head. And then once we make that con connection, we will. Well, we'll figure out where we're going next. All, all right. right. Very good. Thank you, everybody, for joining us. And we'll see you guys next week. Bye. Bye now.